The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to FinancialSenseWealth.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. AI mania is driving stock markets into record territory. All major indexes added over 1% this week. Driving this week's gains were an earnings release by NVIDIA, which topped revenue forecasts. No other stock in history has gained so much in so short of a time. It took Apple 42 years to reach $1 trillion in market cap. It took NVIDIA nine months to go from $1 trillion to $2 trillion. NVIDIA's stock is now worth more than the entire GDP of Canada. In the words of Goldman Sachs, NVIDIA is the most important stock on the planet. Well, despite the market index records, the gains continue to be concentrated in the Magnificent Seven. Experts are now predicting the rally in these stocks could continue for years to come, making them more valuable than some of the largest economies in the world. In other news, interest rates continue to rise, with the two-year note hitting 4.7% this week. Last October, it hit 5.2%, and we could see it going back up to that level again, as massive federal deficits is causing the Treasury to raise almost three-quarters of a trillion dollars in the first quarter alone. Finally, this marks the 14th consecutive week that gold has held above 2,000 an ounce as massive central bank buying of gold is acting as support for gold prices, which brings up the question, what do they know that we don't? Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Poplava, and welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. My special guest this week is Jim Welsh. Jim talks about the 17-year cycle and what this means for future stock prices, interest rates, inflation, the economy, and debt. And following Jim, I'm going to run an interview I did with Ronald Marks, the author of Dying of Money, and how inflation unfolds, as I believe we have now entered another and even bigger inflationary cycle that has years to play out. A new theme we're going to be discussing on the program in the months ahead is a third bubble is now being built in the financial assets from stocks, bonds, to real estate. I'm calling it Bubble Up, the everything bubble that is being fueled by over $15 trillion in fiscal and monetary stimulus that shows no end in sight. I first started writing about financial bubbles in my Perfect Financial Storm series, written in 2000, warning about the internet bubble. My second series, The Day After Tomorrow, written in 2004, warned about the housing bubble that unfolded and led to the great financial crisis of 2007 and 2009. I hope you enjoy this special interview. Even better, if you've not already read Dying of Money, read the book if you want to understand the bubble that is now building in the financial markets fueled by the mania and AI. At the start of the week, the rotation between tech and growth persisted. However, NVIDIA's earnings report, along with comments from certain Fed Reserve officials hinting at potential rate cuts later in the year, provided reassurance. This helped salvage the tech sector and bolstered overall market sentiment towards the end of the week, especially considering the limited economic reports released during this period. Additionally, there were a few notable earnings disappointments that warrant further examination. Starting off with Tuesday, Walmart announced earnings that were pleasing to investors. 
The stock closed up 3.2%, hitting all-time highs before settling down later in the week. While the company only beat earnings by a penny in the third quarter, they knocked it out of the park in the fourth quarter with a double-digit surprise in earnings and good upside to the revenue. While their guidance was mixed for the next quarter, the company announced a 9% dividend increase, its largest increase in more than a decade. Finally, the company added they will be acquiring TV maker Vizio. Also announced Tuesday, Discover Financial Services will be acquiring Capital One for an all-stock transaction valued at $35.3 billion. Now, tech continued to sell off into Wednesday as losses were driven by a disappointing earnings announcement from Palo Alto Networks. The cybersecurity company beat earnings and posted inline revenue, but it guided down for the next quarter, something of a norm uh, typically for the company. However, this time they lowered their outlook for the year. The company said demand isn't dropping off necessarily for the need for protection, but rather they are shifting strategies to address AI and acknowledgement that they are seeing some spending fatigue in cybersecurity. The FOMC minutes were released on Wednesday, but they were largely a nothing burger since they were largely communicated by Powell at his conference January 31st post the policy decision. So no real news there. Thursday, the Atlas company holding the world markets on its shoulders, NVIDIA reported earnings. Because of the importance NVIDIA has in driving AI adoption with its picks and shovels approach of providing accelerated chips to the market, their earnings are probably the most important to discuss every earnings season, at least since last year. There was an initial sell-off to the earnings due to a few things, views that revenue growth would slow in the first quarter. Uncertainty around revenues from China due to the ban on chips and the country's economic situation there, and the forecast of the eventual drop-off in margins. Speaking to the results last quarter, the company saw revenues grow 265% year-over-year, with earnings obliterating records up 476% year-over-year. The big part of their growth has come from data centers retooling with accelerated computing using NVIDIA's Hopper GPU, that's graphic processing unit, the chips needed for high-performance computing and generative AI. The rub for NVIDIA is that they think they will be supply-constrained given the incredible demand for its product. Not a bad problem to have. Looking at the individual segments of the company, gaming revenue was up 56%, professional visualization revenue was up double, while automotive revenue fell 4% year-over-year. The hurdle ahead for NVIDIA will be trying to overcome the growth of its first quarter of AI-fueled growth, which will come after the first quarter. Recall I said last quarter year-over-year growth was 265%. They projected that next quarter they will come down to 233% growth. While maybe this bar is lower than what they may achieve, there will come a point where investors will have to address the comparable year-over-year results will be difficult to lap. Thursday's performance in tech was riveting post-NVIDIA's 16.4% jump in stock price as the semiconductor index jumped 5% and the S&P 500 technology sector rose 4.4% to fight back any shorts that laid into the rotation last week. Finally, to finish off the week, Fed Vice Chair Jefferson said Thursday it would be appropriate to begin cutting rates later in the year with cautious optimism surrounding continued disinflation. Philadelphia Fed President Harker said he thinks the Fed will be able to cut rates later in the year, but cautioned against the sentiment it could happen now. I think 
the markets and investors are well accustomed to that sentiment. Economic announcements were few this week, with weekly claims staying low at 201,000, while the preliminary February S&P Global Manufacturing Purchase Managers Index rose to 51.5 and services fell to 51.3, both expanding readings. January home sales were at 400 million at an annual rate, still showing that mortgage rates are high, there's tight inventory, and there's high prices holding back sales. That wraps up this week in stocks with the Atlas NVIDIA holding the tech world on its shoulders. Up next, Jim Welsh at Macro Tides. Today, we're going to discuss big tech's monopoly problem, the bursting of China's property bubble versus what we see with commercial real estate here in the U.S., a $10 trillion debt rollover for this year, and lastly, some interesting scenarios to consider should Trump get reelected this November. A lot of people would argue that NVIDIA's basically got a monopoly on high-end AI chips, that Microsoft obviously has got a quasi-monopoly on enterprise software. Now, the reality, of course, is that the history of capitalism is not very favorable to monopolies. It's not very favorable to companies staying at the top of the, the heap, either because competitors invariably try to take them down, uh, and that's more often than not what happens, or in Western democracies, if the monopoly in question tries to cash in an excess rent from its position, in a democracy, usually governments come in and step in and take that out. So today you can value NVIDIA on the cash flows it's going to be generating, or Microsoft on the cash flows it's going to be generating, or Facebook on the cash flows it's going to be generating. And then at some point, you start to see a shift in market mentality where people say, not only am I going to value this because it's generating cash flow, but I'm actually going to put a massive premium on it because it's rare. And you clearly see that today with NVIDIA. You probably see it with Microsoft. And what makes it rare is that it's unique in the market, that it has a unique position. It has a monopoly. Uh, it, it controls a market, uh, which again, in the history of capitalism, that can last for a few years, but it seldom lasts for 10 years, for 20 years. And yet people are willing to project that monopoly very often pretty far out into the future. Now, granted, I'd actually be happy to concede that Microsoft will control enterprise software for the next 10 years. I think the odds of that are actually very high. Will NVIDIA control high-end chips for the next 10 years? That I'm a lot less convinced. Uh, I'm a lot less convinced because I know that on the other side, China is pouring billions and literally tens of thousands of young engineers in trying to crack that code. Because for China, cracking that code has become a matter of national security. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. It is widely anticipated that the Federal Reserve will be lowering interest rates this year. As a result, if you are an investor in CDs or T-bills, your income may decrease. Don't wait until it's too late. Contact Financial Sense Wealth Management now to set up an account consisting of high-quality dividend aristocrats and high-quality bonds. These investments aim to provide increasing income over time, while also taking advantage of tax-efficient strategies. Our objective is to equip you with a steadfast and predictable strategy, helping you navigate the financial markets and provide for a more secure retirement now and in the future. Reach out to us at 888-486-3939 to get started. 
Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, if you've been watching the markets besides watching NVIDIA go up, there's something else that is also going up, and that's not good or doesn't bode well for the economy. It's interest rates. Joining us on the program from Macro Tides is Jim Welsh. Jim, your your latest newsletter is spot on. It it hits a couple of things that uh, I think are really important for investors, and that's to look at where interest rates are heading and what does this mean for the long term? Because for most of us in our adult life, what we've experienced has been declining interest rates. When I got in the business, treasuries were at a little over 15%. They got down to about a half a percent a couple of years ago. And as we're speaking right now, we've got the 10-year note at 4.3, the two-year treasuries over 4.7, and the 30-year bond is at almost 4.5. So let's sp- talk about that and what all this adds up to. Well, I'd uh, love to, Jim, and it's always great to join you. Uh, yeah, In the February macro tides, I did an analysis of looking at long-term interest rates. And as you noted, in 1981, uh, the 10-year treasury was north of 15%, which I think for most people, uh, it's almost incomprehensible if you're like less than 35 years old. Um, and it got down to 55 basis points in March of 2020. And the perspective is that Treasury yields moves uh, in long-term patterns that last 30 years or more. So from 1945 to 1981, uh, a span of about 36 years, Treasury yields went from about 1.5% on the 10-year to that 15% rate in '81 and then from 81 down to 2020. And I think there's a really high likelihood that we are beginning and have begun a new secular bear market. And the implication, obviously, uh, to your point, is that for most of the last 40 years, investors could hang on to bonds and in a sense always be rewarded because yields kept working their way down. And if things have reversed, it has implications, obviously, for the economy, uh, for portfolios, and ultimately for the valuation of the stock market, since stock prices are tethered, if you will, to changes in interest rates. And let's talk about something that is much different now, almost equivalent to where it was coming out of World War II, and that's the national debt. I think we're at right now we're about 34.3 trillion. We're going to we could be at 36 37 trillion this year. Let's talk about the implications for debt. I think the treasurer, I think Yellen said she had to raise something like uh, over uh, 750 billion in the first quarter. So let's talk about the implication for debt because uh, when we were at 15% in treasury yields back in 1980 and 81, we had nowhere close to the amount of debt that we have today. Yeah, uh, it was about 30%, Jim, back then, uh, as a percent of GDP. And it's now north of 120%. Uh, the difference is, compared to right after World War II, is the U.S. economy was in a position, whereas uh, soldiers came home from war, uh, the industrial might of the United States could shift from producing tanks and ships 
and military weapons to start uh, developing and building refrigerators, other appliances, cars, homes. And so that provided a huge lift that lasted for a good 15 years uh, to the overall economy, increasing lending uh, or living standards, pardon me, and made it possible for GIs to come home and have families with three, four, five kids. That was a huge growth spurt, and that brought the debt levels down uh, that existed because of the funding of the Second World War down to much more manageable levels. What we've seen is government spending is on steroids. So historically, deficits of 3 or 4% going back to the 1950s only occurred when the economy was in a recession and government spending was ramped up uh, to increase unemployment benefits and other income transfers to you know, uh, nullify, if you will, some of the worst effects of the recession and then get growth again. So last year, the deficit was north of 6%. And this is while the GDP grew 3% last year. This is completely unprecedented. And what it suggests, Jim, is that in the next recession, the deficit, which was $1.7 trillion last year, will probably jump to $3 trillion or more. And that's just going to amount to an enormous supply of treasury bonds and bills that will need to be sold to fund that gap. And last September and October, there were a couple auctions. One was a 10-year, one was a 30-year treasury bond that were auctioned. And people looked at the supply and those auctions went badly. As a result, treasury yields jumped by 50 basis points last September and October uh, because the supply just overwhelmed the level of demand. I think that's a hint of what potentially will come uh, down the road during the next recession when we see supply uh, dwarf, uh, maybe interest uh, that people have. Uh, foreigners have been buying less. So that is one of the reasons why I think fundamentally I can say, you know what, the chart pattern of Treasury bonds suggests that we're going to have a rally, which we've had since last October, and as you know, I was talking about that, writing about that it was time to buy treasury bonds. Um, but I think once this rally is over, Jim, ultimately we're going to see treasury yields go above where they were uh, last October. The 10-year got to about 5%. I can make a case that it could easily get to 75 to 8% sometime in the next five years. So, And this supply issue, I think, will be one of the components and drivers of that happening. Um, you know, can the economy really handle rates at that level, given the amount of debt? And the answer for me is no. So that's the longer term outlook. Let's talk about uh, some of the implications for that, because something else that was going on, and I think this happened, Jim, going back around 2014, when foreigners stopped buying treasuries and they passed some laws and the banks started to buy treasuries and we saw what happened. A lot of these banks are sitting on treasuries. They bought when the yields were at a half a percent, one percent, and they got big losses. But the other thing that we're starting to see is a de-dollarization. So you have Russia, China, the BRIC countries, and parts of OPEC that are now trading 
in other currency. It could be one, it could be uh, something else. And they're settling in gold, so they're moving away from the dollar. They're not replacing it, but the, you know, if China wants to sell something to Brazil and they want commodities, they sell it and they it's denominated in yuan. And then if Brazil has excess yuan, they can go on the Shanghai exchange and exchange it for gold. So what that implies to me, there's less big buyers of those treasuries. So this gets to your point. At some point, like last fall, they're going to come to the market with a huge supply of treasuries, and there's not going to be buyers. Yeah, enough buyers. And all it takes is, you know, basically price is uh, determined by supply and demand. And it doesn't take much of a shift in either of those two components, demand and supply, to have a, a large impact on prices. So any diminution of demand in the face of more supply is not a good thing. Um, and, you know, one of the risks, I think, over the next decade, uh, which also has inflationary implications, is the chart pattern of the U.S. dollar, to me, looks like we're going to see a period of weakness Starting sometime this year, uh, the dollar has been trading up around 104 in uh, change. Uh, I think potentially sometime this year, early next year, it will drop to 96. So you say, well, that's not that big a deal. But in the world of currencies, a decline of 8% is a very, very big move. So I, I think the longer term pattern in the dollar implies to me that ultimately the dollar We'll get down towards 88, which was also a, a number of highs going back the last 30 years. And then in 2008, the low in the dollar was about 70. So to your point, I think I can lay out a case of why the dollar will gradually lose its status as the reserve currency of the world. It's not going to happen overnight. The depths of our financial markets dwarf what they are in Brazil and China and so forth. But it what they're doing is a crack in the facade of the strong dollar. And I think fundamentals will come into play at some point. If I'm right about rates going up, rather than attracting capital, people will look at its impact on economic growth. And if the you know Washington continues to spend money like uh, they have, uh, confidence in the management of our country, I think, will undermine the dollar at some point in time. So there's a lot of forces that are coming together that I believe is setting the stage for a secular bear market in the equity market. Uh, and it's a combination of a lot of factors, but the dollar is one of the components. And that's where I want to go next. I want to go to the stock market because what I see developing, and you just wrote about it, is a stock market cycle that is reminiscent of what we saw from 1968 to 1982. So you had uh, you would have a bull market, could be a couple of years for a bull market, then it would be followed by a bear market, another bull market, and it was you know, it wasn't this long period of time that I think investors got used to from 1980 to 1990, 1990 to 2000. And 2000 was a little uh, heads up of what could be coming because the stock market went nowhere for almost 13 years. But Jim, the last decade, stock market went up. And I want to talk about another bubble 
I see, which is index funds. If you take a look at the amount of money that's going into index funds, that's pumping up the MAG7 and all these stocks, that has taken over active management. Money has flowed out of active managed funds, and it's in an index fund, which is like a no-brainer. But people don't realize when you own an index fund, you don't have a manager saying, hey, I, I'm going to buy these MAG7 stocks at 50, 60, 80, 90 times earnings. They just buy them. There's no thinking behind it. Right. So let's talk about what could this imply for the stock market. Well, at some point in time, again, in order to have large declines in stocks, there has to be a reason to sell because mutual funds, insurance companies, uh, you know, Wall Street just basically preaches buy and hold. Um, and so there has to be a reason to sell to convince people that normally just buy and hold that it's in their interest to do some selling. So at some point in time, um, you know, they're referred to as passive investments where people are just going into uh, index funds. And you're 100% right. There's more money in passive funds than there is in active funds. So that means some of the people that have invested money have just said, hey, you know what? It'll cost me very little to go into this index fund. And that's all I really care about. Um, so I believe if I'm right, that a secular bear market is right around the corner like the 1966 to 1982 period where the market went nowhere despite some very violent swings up and down that at some point in time uh you know it's just human nature if you're losing money at some point in time you don't sleep as well and then after a period of time you finally say you know what i, I just can't take it i have to i'm down 35 percent. i can't take it and that, I think, is what awaits us, Jim, is when a big reason to sell materializes, and we've talked about some of the things that could <laughs> qualify, um, the market then will go down a fair amount. And at some point in time, it reaches a breaking point for a lot of people that are in those passive investments. And you know, after month after month of seeing their account value decline, finally call up and say, you know what? Uh, get me out, put me in the money market fund. And that's the kind of purge that will ultimately happen during the coming secular bear market. It's interesting, since the late 1800s, Jim, there have been four secular bear markets. So we're not talking about something that's, if you will, completely rare. It's happened consistently over a period of time uh, where you get extended periods where the stock market goes up, and then you get extended periods where the market goes sideways to down. So, you know, looking at history as a guide and looking at current valuations and the outlook I have for interest rates, I think people should just be much more careful at this point in time um, than they have been in a long time. And, you know, one of the factors, as you know, I've written about and we've talked about it, I think the last time we uh, had a conversation is the 17 year cycle which going back to 1939, every 17 years, 1939, 56, 73, 90, 2007, here we are 2024, after uh, a peak during that 17th year, the S&P has declined by at least 20%. And obviously the decline in 73, 74 was about 50%. The 2007 to nine decline was 57%. Um, so we're talking about a significant 
period of weakness. And again, I think that period of weakness could then extend if Treasury yields uh, ultimately next year and the following year are above 5%. You know, so I think most people are just because they're taught to buy and hold. Uh, they're told that, gee, if you miss the 10 worst days or 10 best days, pardon me, your returns are terrible. But to me, that's such a spacious argument because I could equally say, and I think disingenuously, that, gee, if you missed uh, the 10 worst days, your returns would be even higher uh, than buy and hold by a factor of about two and a half to one. Because there's more, the down days in any given year are bigger than the up days. So my only point is there's been an indoctrination and it's been able to really take hold, which is why people are comfortable putting money into index funds is because just buy and hold, hang on for the long term, everything's going to be okay. Well, if you're in the 30s or 40s, you can bear with a 10 to 15 year period where the returns are not good at all. Um, but if you're, you know, north of 50, 10 or 15 years could represent a knockout punch for your retirement. So I just think we're at a period of high risk um, in 2024 that investors need to kind of really take stock of where they are and, um, you know, question whether buy and hold is going to be the right philosophy and investment style that they should continue to work with. I want to talk about what has been moving the stock market, Jim. We started out with the MAG-7, then it was the MAG-6, then it was the uh, foursome, and then we got to the dynamic dual, and now we're down to basically a one-stock NVIDIA that's driving the market. And what I want to bring up is the implication that this has with the massive amount in index funds. And we saw this, Jim, in 2022, when the stock market, the S&P was down about 25%, the NASDAQ was down 33 But as money came out of these index funds, 30 cents of every dollar that comes out went to the MAG-7, so they got sold more. People forget that stocks like Microsoft, Amazon, and some of Apple, a lot of these stocks lost 40, 50, and 60% in 2022. Yes, they came back in 23. But when you go into a downturn and money is coming out of index funds, these stocks get hit harder. Well, they do. And one of the driving forces for that uh, larger decline in 2022 was the increase in interest rates. You know, as I said before, Stocks are priced based on interest rates and high growth stocks uh, are more sensitive to higher interest rates uh, because of their excessive or high valuations. So again, um, you know, I have a piece that goes through and explains, you know, a lot of the reasons why the coming secular bear market of why I think treasury yields are likely to work their way higher. Uh, and again, this isn't anything novel. Same thing happened from 1945 to 1981. And if I'm right, we'll see a repeat, Jim, of what happened in 2022 as rates go up um, later this year, next year, and so forth. Those stocks are going to be particularly vulnerable, A, because their valuations are high. So some institutions are going to do some selling. And as they do some selling, it starts to have a greater impact on the indexes that are heavily weighted toward those high-priced stocks. So it's like dominoes starting to cascade. 
You saw it in 2022. I think we're going to see another period of that. And the, the thing I would point out is the decline in 2022 occurred even though the economy never went into a recession. So that meant the fundamental businesses of those companies remained uh, solid. If the U.S. goes into a recession at any point in time in the next two to three years, and I think it'll be sooner than three years, um, those companies' customers will start to cut back on their spending. Now you get the double whammy that instead of revenue growing at 25 30% a year, it slows to 15%. And that, too, will take a chunk out of valuation. So to me, there's... Um, uh, you know, just a fair amount of speculation at this point in time going on in these stocks, just like the Nifty 50 in 1972, just like the dot-com bomb uh, bubble <laughs> in uh, 99 and early 2000. So this is just human nature at work in psychology, Jim, where everybody's gravitated toward artificial intelligence is going to change the world. Um, it's all good stuff. There's believability in the story, which is why people can justify and rationalize buying stocks at expensive levels. But I think there are underlying fundamental forces that are going to come to bear over the next few years that these stocks are going to get hammered worse than in 2022, especially if the economy goes into any kind of a meaningful slowdown and certainly a recession. Let's talk about what may be forced upon the Fed, which is monetization of U.S. debt. Because as you pointed out in your article, 31% of our $34 trillion in debt is coming due within one year. And the implications for that, Jim, is a lot of this debt was at much, much lower interest rates. So if you go from a half a percent on a 10-year treasury to 5% on a 10-year treasury, it's no wonder that the interest on the debt now is exceeding what we spend on defense. So what are the implications there when you've got this giant amount of, and it doesn't look like anytime soon Congress is in the mood to cut spending. They're still, they're, they've got new spending bills that are going to even spend even more. We want to give a hundred billion to, to Ukraine. We want uh, money for all these different programs. They keep coming They build back better, the green new deal, all of this, is excessive spending, which is one reason you and I today are talking about a debt that's yep. $34.3 trillion. Yep, yep. Um, that is one of the drivers, Jim, is rates move up. Um, the interest expense begins to consume a larger and larger share of the budget, and it begins to put pressure on other programs, not just defense, but social spending programs like Social Security and Medicare, um, which are due to run out of money within the next decade. So the pressure points are building. Ultimately, at some point in time, um, I think Congress is going to be forced to make some difficult decisions. And the only way this gets solved is by a combination of raising taxes and reducing spending. And why would they ever be brought to that point is... Uh, if I'm right and we see a recession develop in the not too distant future and the deficit soars to over three trillion a year um, and we see policymakers, the Fed will cut rates, the government will spend even more money. Uh, when the bond market balks at the amount of paper that's being thrown at it, 
Uh, I think that is the pressure point, uh, both on the Fed. Do I expect the Fed to institute quantitative easing again? Yes, to try to uh, suppress long-term interest rates uh, for both economic reasons, for budget reasons, and so forth. But ultimately, um, the the real solution uh, is going to be difficult on the economy. In other words, the government spent 6% more than it took in last year. That spending is feeding demand in the economy, uh, which is one of the reasons why, despite rate increases, it grew 3% last year. So at some point in time when the music stops, uh, there is a day of reckoning coming. And I believe that when that occurs, um, the it'll be because of a pressure point from the economy being weak and the same policy tools that they've used for the last 40, 50 years, all of a sudden uh, are not the right remedy. And markets will react negatively, like we talked about the dollar as being part of that equation. So these are all reasons why uh, I think we're going to see higher treasury yields. We're going to see a secular bear market in the equity market. And most investors are really, I think, pretty oblivious to all that, all this. They assume that you know monetary policy will continue to provide the elixir for the economy and the government can spend money ad nauseum without any repercussions. And in the real world, uh, that just isn't going to work. That's not, and I think we're finally getting to that breaking point, Jim. And, uh, you know, we're not alone in this. I mean, this is a global phenomenon in terms of government spending and deficits and so forth. So it implies that globally, the economy is going to uh, experience an extended window of growth that's well below what the historic norm has been. And I think what this is going to do, Jim, is expose the fallacy of MMT, modern monetary theory, which, you know, the theory being if you can issue debt in your own currency, you can go ahead and create as much debt as you want because you're issuing it in your own currency and you just simply print the money to pay for it. And uh, I think it's going to expose that uh, this the, the fallacy of these assumptions made in this because both parties are adhering to this philosophy. It's like... Each party has its own priority on spending money. Uh, but I want to talk about something else, too, that's coming up. In When Trump passed his tax cuts, he cut corporate tax rates from 35% to 21%. And what did we see in 2018 and 2019? The markets took off like a rocket ship because you cut taxes by almost 60%. That translated into earnings, number one. And number two, most of that money, Jim, as you know, went into stock buybacks. I mean, they were buying mm -hmm. back over a trillion. So yep. what happens in 2026? And we revert back to the old tax rates. We go back from 21 to 35, the implication on corporate earnings. Well, it's negative. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so again, when if we reach the breaking point where the deficit uh, has become unmanageable, then there has to be steps to try to make it manageable enough because markets are not uh, are reacting negatively to what's been happening. Things like raising the corporate tax rate, raising taxes on the top 10% or more of people, 
um, and reducing spending, all of that is negative for the economy and obviously then negative for corporate earnings. And it's another reason why uh, um, PE ratios start to contract. I mean, in the 19, from 66 to 82, the driving force of that adjustment was higher inflation, which caused rates to go up um, and that put pressure on the economy as well as profits and so forth. So it's just a different um, uh, driving force this time. But the outcome, I think, is going to be very similar in that uh, as we try to solve some of these problems, uh, it creates other problems. But you reach a point where it's like the point of no return. You do what you have to to survive until tomorrow. And that's, unfortunately, I think, where we're going to get to. I'm glad you pointed out. I mean, when President Trump was running the show, uh, deficits annualized were about 4% of GDP. Again, that's never happened during an economic expansion. So you're right. Both Republicans and Democrats have been uh, pretty <laughs> uh, spendthrifty. You know, that word is an interesting word. You hear the word spendthrift, you think, oh, that's somebody who's careful with their money. No, it's the exact opposite. So, um, again, as we've been talking, Jim, hopefully listeners can see that there's so many pressure points that have been building for an extended period of time. And at some point in time, if the economy slows, that's what pulls all these pressure points and magnifies them uh, into a, a big time problem. And, you know, recessions have not been outlawed. The longer the Fed keeps rates where they are, the uh, pressure on Main Street uh, is going to remain high. So if you look at credit card rates, auto loan rates, small businesses in terms of the money that they borrow, um, they're really being squeezed by the big increase we've seen in interest rates. It's just taking longer this cycle because of government spending and the excess savings that built up in 2021 and 2022. It didn't negate, you know, those forces aren't going to be there forever to support economic growth. So that's why, again, I think later this year, to get towards mid-year, we're going to see the economy slow markedly. That's my my bet. And let's talk about uh, another asset class that did well in that period from 68 to 82, and that was gold. And a lot of people say, well, if interest rates are rising. Gold has to compete with that, and it pays no interest, so it's not good for gold. But that's not what happened in the 60s and the 70s. We had interest rates go. In fact, when we hit 15.8 on the Treasury bond, gold was at 800. Yep, yep. Um, so, you know, my take on gold has been, is technically the rally uh, from the low in 2022 traced out five waves. And I know this is going to sound kind of crazy to most of the listeners, uh, but it's it's an, an important pattern recognition. That implies, in my view, that the trend in gold is up. So my take has been is we were going to see a correction <clears throat> from the high in May um, that would then lead to another rally in gold sometime this year that would take gold up to 2300 or higher. So if I'm right, the way things are going to likely play out here, Jim, is the economy will slow, the Fed will cut rates, we'll see Treasury yields come down in the next six months for a period of time, and the dollar will weaken, 
And all those things are very supportive of a rally in gold. So I think that's what's coming, uh, both for uh, the financial markets, but also for gold. So, you know, uh, the gold could dip. It's possible um, based on the pattern that gold could drop back down towards 1850 or a little bit lower than that. If it does, I would aggressively buy gold because I that wouldn't change the outlook for a rally above 2300. It would just provide a more attractive entry point as opposed to negating uh, the bigger picture in terms of what the chart pattern suggests is likely to happen this year. Well, I couldn't agree with you more because we're going to be doing a piece today called Bubble Up, the bubble of everything. And two big bubbles we see are the bond market and also the uh, other bubble that we see is in these index funds that are feeding these magnificent or what was the magnificent <laughs> seven that's been reduced now to uh, the incredible one. But uh, anyway, Jim, as we close, if our listeners like to follow your work, you do some great work, both technical and fundamental. How could they do so? Thank you, Jim. Uh, go to my website, macrotides.com. Uh, there's a piece that will be posted on your website with some information, and it has my email so that uh, your listeners can access some of the special reports that I've put together that cover uh, the points that you and I have been talking about. And I'm more than happy to send it out. I mean, you're in the information education business, and that's how I view what I'm trying to do with my letter is to educate people, make them more aware of what's going on and what potentially could be coming down the road. So again, I always enjoy talking to you, Jim. We, you know, it's just great to have a nice conversation. <laughs> well, enjoy them immensely. Well, Jim, listen, take care, and we'll be talking to you again soon. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals. Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Call now at 888-486-3939. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Listeners to this program will probably recall one of my favorite passages from Dying of Money to describe the inflationary cycle, or what we will be now calling MMT. And it goes somewhat like this, and I'm reading this from page 71 of the book. And it goes, everyone loves an early inflation. The effects at the beginning of an inflation are all good. There's steepened money expansion, rising government spending, increased government budget deficits, a booming stock market, and a spectacular general prosperity, all in the midst of a temporarily stable prices. Everyone benefits and no one pays. That is the early part of the cycle. In the terminal inflation phase, there is faltering prosperity, tightness of money, falling stock prices, rising taxes, and still even larger government deficits. 
and still soaring money expansion, but now accompanied by soaring prices and the ineffectiveness of all traditional remedies. Everyone pays, no one benefits. That is the full cycle of every inflation. How true and prescient those words were. Researching inflation and its causes led me to get into, for example, gold, energy, emerging market, and commodities as primary investments in the last decade. Now, I came across three books after reading Capitalism by George Reisman. In the course of that research, I learned that Jens O'Parson was really a nom de plume used by a well-known lawyer and partner in a prestigious law firm. He wrote the book in 1974. We had just gone off the gold standard, and the book was very critical of the economic policies being pursued by then-President Nixon and also the Arthur Burns Fed. And, of course, if you're a partner at a prestigious law firm, you don't want your name out there being critical of government. But so many of the things that Parson wrote about, including the quote I read here on the air, unfolded exactly as he said they would. So he's long since retired, but I got I actually, doing some research, I got a hold of his son who arranged the interview, which you're about to hear, and I'm happy to say the book was reprinted in paperback form back in March of 2011. The original book was written in 1974, way ahead of its time. The book out there, it's somewhat pricey, uh, prices ranging from $46 to $149. When I bought my original copy, it was the original 1974 edition. I think I paid 300 bucks for it, as I reminded Ronald Marks. Uh, his inflation forecast came true, and it was reflected in the price of his book. So I highly recommend finding a copy or maybe looking at your library. I hope you enjoyed listening to my interview, which was one of my favorite interviews of my broadcast career. That's coming up next. After World War I, the major powers went through a great recession. But unlike the power that was defeated, things were different in Germany. In 1920 and 1921, Germany had enjoyed a remarkable prosperity, envied by the rest of the world. Prices were steady, business was humming, and everyone was working. The stock market was skyrocketing. The Germans were swimming in easy money. Within a year, they were drowning in it. Until it was all over, no one seemed to notice any connection between the earlier false boom and the latter inflationary bust. Fast forward to the 21st century today, and we have central banks around the globe printing money. Will we see inflation again? Well, we're going to be talking about that today with my special guest, Genzo Parsons. Now, you've heard me talk about dying of money over the years. I've often referred to the author as Genzo Parsons. His real name is Ronald Marks, and he joins me on the program today. Mr. Marks, it's great to be speaking with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. You have written, in my opinion, one of the best books I have ever read on inflation and how it works. Given your law background, how did you acquire the insights into the process of inflation and how it works its way through the economy? Well, it's a process of self-education. I had never had an economics course, which I think was a bit of an advantage because I hadn't been imbued with some of those wrong ideas that economics was teaching. But I saw the inflation starting to happen in the middle 60s, and I wanted to see what was the cause of this. So I conceived of the idea that I have in the book of tracing inflation to the quantity of money times its velocity divided by the amount of assets to be paid for by the money. And before I discovered that that theory had already been created, 
by some economists who are not the orthodox economists, but mavericks of a sort. Who were those economists? Well, Irving Fisher was one. He was a very prominent American economist and had written on the subject back at around the turn of the century. This is before World War One. You know, one of the things I learned in your book, the ability of savers in Germany to hold marks enabled the government to mask the underlying effects of inflation. This storage factor of investors saving marks kept those marks from being dumped immediately into the market. In many ways, just like today, where you have Americans that are holding treasuries or buying treasury bonds, a lot of money has gone into the bond funds. Do you see a lot of similarities between, let's say, what happened in Germany and what's happening today? Well, very much so. In fact, I think it's even worse now than it was in Germany. I did some calculations on the present state of affairs. The money supply has increased by 4.85 since the end of 1979, and prices have only increased by 2.32 times, which means that there's a latent inflation of about 109% by these calculations. That inflated money is mainly, I would say, in the debt markets because you found that even federal debt securities are pretty close to 0% interest which is very contrasting to the situation in the past when outbreaks of inflation were occurring. The interest rates went higher than 10%, for instance. So I think that's where the money is that has been pumped out. And the question is when that money starts to come back from debt securities into goods. You know, this is something I guess people here in the United States have had a tough time understanding. The one thing that the U.S. has as an advantage is we're the world's reserve currency. Does that give us a little bit more leeway, in your opinion, versus, let's say, a country like Argentina? I don't think it gives you more leeway. I think it gives you less because those foreign holders of dollars are the potential for an outburst of inflation. If they lose faith in the dollar, that's what will happen. This happened with Germany, too. German mark was greatly respected at the time. And a great many marks were held by overseas holders, including Americans. And when the inflation started to get rolling, all of that foreign money came into Germany looking for things to buy. And that compounded the inflation instead of reducing it. You talked about in your book a quick and clean inflation, which destroys paper wealth like an amputation is often less vicious than a surprised and protracted inflation. Why is that, in your opinion? Well, the longer inflation drags on, the more collateral damage it causes to the economy. Whereas if, for instance, we were to raise all our prices by 100% overnight, there wouldn't be that prolonged pain being inflicted on us. Of course, that isn't the way that inflation has ever ended, so it's really kind of hypothetical. You know, something that you talk about in your book, which we're seeing play out today, is every burst of monetary inflation was followed by a stock market rise and boom with prosperity. Every contraction by a stock market fall and recession. We saw, for example, the boom of the late 90s followed by a contraction and a stock market fall. That was followed by more money printing and we got another stock market boom and a real estate boom. Then we got a crash in the market again, as well as in real estate. Let's talk about those reservoirs of inflation that you talk so much about in your book, money wealth being one of them and the stock market being another one. Well, it's true that those reservoirs are very serious. I think the largest one is the debt market. 
which is tying up a great deal of money right now. That's what uh, I meant earlier when I mentioned the fact that interest rates are practically zero. And the Fed has been pumping out money at a great rate for the last several years. One of the quotes that I often refer to in your book, and in fact, it's one of my favorites, but it describes the inflation process. I want to read it. and My listeners will know it by heart because I often quote it. Everyone loves an early inflation. The effects at the beginning of an inflation are all good. They're steep in money expansion, rising government spending, increased government budget deficits and booming stock markets, and a spectacular general prosperity, all in the midst of temporary stable prices. Everyone benefits and no one pays. That's the early part of the cycle. In the latter inflation, on the other hand, the effects are all bad, The government may steadily increase the money inflation in order to stave off the latter effects, but the latter effects patiently wait. And I think about, Mr. Marks, the last decade where we came out of the tech bubble and the Fed lowered the federal funds rate, the money supply increased, we had general prosperity, the economy took off along with the market and real estate. But then by the time we got to 2006 and 2007, inflation had risen to 5%. Interest rates were rising as the Fed raised the federal funds rate. And eventually, we know what happened. They call it the Great Recession. Tax revenues fell. Money printing increased. Stock prices fell along with real estate. Let's talk about that because I think that's what people forget when the Fed starts to increase the money supply, lower interest rates, eventually it creates a wealth effect. And we see it in the stock market. We see it even in the bond market with lower interest rates and rising bond prices. But it all comes to an end, as all inflations have in history. Well, that is certainly true. In this cycle, the prices have not risen anywhere near as much as the money supply has, so that we have some of the effects of the deflation We don't have a money deflation, but we have a lot of stored-up inflation that is still waiting to happen. And that's money wealth, which is the debt markets, and several of the technicians I've had on the program are predicting that at some point, after five or six years of 0% interest rates, investors are going to start to wake up to the fact that their money doesn't buy the same goods and services, and also that the rate of return is not commensurate with the rate of inflation. Hasn't quite happened yet, but it's a storage that is a potential there. You also talk in your book about when inflation starts to heat up. I can remember President Carter saying that inflation is caused by strange and mysterious forces. Sometimes the government comes up with culprits and scapegoats. It's businesses raising prices, greedy oil companies or unions trying to raise wages. But let's talk about the culprits and the scapegoats, which are never mentioned the fact that it's money creation itself, because all inflation is a monetary event. Can you talk about the quantity theory of money formulating your thesis on inflation? Well, the quantity theory of money is simply that prices are determined by the quantity of money multiplied by its rate of spending. The rate of spending is about 50 times a year in the United States. The quantity times velocity has been divided by the supply of values which are going to be transferred by means of money. That supply of values includes the gross national product, but it also includes all the existing assets, stocks and bonds and real estate and all those assets 
which are available to sell and can be sold. That, by the way, is one of the differences that my analysis takes from uh, Milton Friedman, for instance, who compared the money supply with just the gross national product. And that misses a big reservoir of inflationary potential is in the markets for capital assets. You know, you talk about three variables that are at work in inflation. You have the money supply, and then you have money velocity, how quickly it turns over, and then, of course, the supply of real values or goods. And you talk about in the early stages of inflation, quantity leads, the money supply increases, eventually velocity follows. And one thing that we've seen with the Fed's expansion of its balance sheet coming out of the Great Recession We've seen an increase in the money supply, but we have yet to see the velocity. Is that because, Mr. Marks, in your opinion, a lot of that money that could be turned into velocity is waiting in reservoirs of inflation, like in the stock market or the bond market? I'm not sure the velocity has decreased. I think if you were to look at the quantity increase multiplied by velocity, you'd find that there's a lot more purchasing power circulating around. And so far, it has remained in the investment markets instead of the markets for goods and services. So I think the latent inflation is in the capital markets rather than in decreased velocity or anything like that. Yeah, because one of the things you talk about in your book is a man with money can spend it on two principal kinds of things. One kind is current goods and services, which adds to GDP. The second kind is land, property, stocks, and mortgages, which corresponds to national wealth. At any given time, there are two distinct money supplies and two distinct velocities of money. Let's talk about that. I may be overstating the separation when I say two distinct money supplies, but what I mean is that there are two separate parts of the money supply which are being used in these two different markets. And I suppose there is a velocity of money in the capital markets and a different velocity of money in goods and services. The outpouring of inflated money usually goes into the capital markets first, creating rising markets and eventually inflation in that market. And then it moves into goods and services where it causes the inflation that's really painful. Could that be something that the Fed is often referring to as the wealth effect? In other words, as money goes into an asset market, whether it was real estate in the last decade or currently stock prices, you know, people feel wealthier. They look at their 401k statements and they see that the stock market is going up. They see that their housing prices are starting to rise. And when they feel wealthier, they're more inclined to go out and spend that money. So eventually, when they start to spend it, it gets into the real economy. Is that the sequence? I don't know whether it's a psychological feeling on the part of the people with the money. I think it's more of a mechanical process. The money just turns over kind of spontaneously. When a person has it, he's ready to spend it. In the capital markets, as you talk about, which is a principal repository of inflation, in my opinion, Mr. Marks, that's the good aspects of inflation. When you see stock prices go up, bond prices go up. But I take a look, as you made reference to interest rates today, I mean, if you're a saver and put your money in treasury bills, a one-year treasury bill is about one-tenth of one percent. If you were in two-year treasury notes, you would get less than three-tenths of a percent. That doesn't even cover inflation by a wide margin. In your book, you talk about this money wealth. And Keynes talked about money wealth was the force 
to be stripped of. Let's talk about money wealth. When does it rise and basically rebel? Because at some point it does. And when it does, it does so silently, as you talk about so eloquently in your book. It doesn't go out in the streets and protest like Occupy Wall Street. It just simply begins to withdraw and put the money elsewhere. Right. The inflation of the money supply, as I said, it shows up earliest in the capital markets and then moves into the goods markets. The inflation we've been seeing recently has lowered the interest rates to practically zero, which is an enormous inflation of the value of the asset. I think it's only a matter of time before a reaction will set in, moving a good part of this purchasing power from capital markets into goods. It's a little hard to see that happening when we have a semi-recessionary condition in the goods markets, which is something that hasn't usually happened in an inflation. In other words, inflation tends to stimulate those markets rather than depress them. So it's a little hard to guess when the movement will occur, but in the end, it seems almost certain that it has to occur, movement of money purchasing power from capital markets to goods and services. Yeah, in your book, you talk about the inflationary assault on money wealth succeeds quite nicely for a time, but only until money wealth finds that it can erect a convenient and complete defense by simply abolishing fixed interest. When this takes place, the holders of money wealth express their revolt by the simple act of getting rid of their money and money wealth and declining to hold it in the future any longer than necessary to get rid of it. They do not fly flags or demonstrate in the streets or express their revolt. They simply get rid of their money. And all of those reservoirs, well, sometimes that's where the money goes, whether it goes into goods, real estate, or other type things. What about the role, Mr. Marks, of taxes? Money inflation operates on both the tax side and the distribution side of valve which moves money wealth directly from creditors who saved and held capital to debtors who spent and consumed. For example, today, if you are a debtor, you can go out, you can refinance your house, you can get some of the lowest mortgage rates that I have seen in half a century. On the other hand, if you were diligently saving your money for retirement and you're retired trying to live off your savings, your savings, in effect, have been destroyed because you can't get a return. I mean, five years ago, had you had a million dollars, I could have invested it in two-year treasury notes at 5%. You would have got a monthly income of, let's say, $4,000. If I was to invest it in two-year treasury notes today, you'd be lucky to get a monthly income of $200. So in this process, it has destroyed the returns for savers. If you're a debtor, you're making out like a bandit. If you're a saver, you're being robbed. Right. As I say in the book, the inflation tax on dollar capital is the key element in the government's use of inflation as an active policy. Inflation tax draws heavily on the holders of money wealth and distributes to the people who benefit from the inflation, that is consumers mainly. As I say in the book, the way to substitute for inflation tax would be a capital tax in form. Two or three percent tax on capital could substitute for the inflation financing that the government is depending on. Is this in some effect what we've done since the beginning of the year? For example, the tax on capital gains was raised to 20 percent. 
There's an additional Obamacare tax of 3.8, so you're at almost 24% on capital gains. And recently, the state of Michigan and Illinois has now raised an estate tax on wealth of 10% on wealth over a million dollars. So are we beginning to see the signs of this? I guess I would comment on a couple of those taxes. The Michigan tax that you cite seems to be much too heavy. The most you could collect in a capital tax is 1% or 2%. Because you would almost expect at some point if taxes got too high, I know I see this even with my own clients, they are less inclined to take capital gains. If they have a gain in real estate or they have a gain in stock, they just soon sit on it and allow the stock to appreciate rather than, let's say, take those gains and pay the taxes where, like in my own state of California, where the taxes can be 13.3%, you add that to almost 24%, you're talking about 37% or almost 40% of your gain, which gets rather high. You may have noticed that one of the things I proposed in rationalizing the tax system was to index the basis for the capital asset and then tax the gain at ordinary income rates. And I think that would be a useful way to increase the yield while at the same time making more sense. In other words, when we tax capital gains on the nominal gain, to some extent you're taxing the return of capital. If the value of the asset has increased with inflation, you're taxing the inflation the way we do it now. If we were to tax real gain at ordinary income rates, it might be a draw as far as tax revenue goes, but it would make more sense so that people with long-term holdings would not be penalized when they have to sell it with a gain that's not real. You know, going back to your book, when you wrote it, which was in the early 70s, you predicted that the double-digit inflation would eventually end. How did you see that? What I saw ending it was that prices would catch up with the increased money supply at a certain point. And I must say, I have to take credit for predicting that correctly because the double-digit inflation did slow down to the same speed as the money creation when that latent inflation of about 20-odd percent had been worked off by rising prices. Prices rising faster than the money supply was rising. And that occurred in, what, 74, I guess. Now, when you began writing this book, I know you did it over a period of time. In the beginning, you decided to self-publish the book. Why was that? Well, I made a couple of abortive efforts to get a publisher. I asked the regular publishers if they were interested in it, and nobody was. So I said, well, all right, I'll publish it myself. I don't think they could see the strength of the argument I was making about what the money supply was doing. So I tried it myself. Well, I'm glad to see that. A final question is, you've seen this inflationary process play out over time. Looking at what has unfolded over the last decade, if you were to write your book today, what would you change or what would you add to it? I guess what I would add to it is to try to analyze the comparative rates of money and price inflation since 78. And in many ways, the experience in 78 is similar to what had occurred prior to 74, the much greater increase in money than prices to date, which it doesn't seem to show a strong tendency to liquidate itself, but it's there. And I would have to say that in all probability, it will liquidate itself at some point by a higher rate of price inflation than money expansion. As you take a look at what we've done and what the Fed's doing now, do you expect to see higher rates of inflation going forward? Yes, I do. 
very much higher. In the area like the 70s, where I think when I got in this business, could we see double-digit inflation again? I don't see any reason why not. The money support for that double-digit inflation is there. The only thing that stands in the way is that business isn't good enough for everybody to feel ready to raise its prices. I don't know exactly why that is, but it is. Well, speaking of inflation, Mr. Marks, I have an original copy of your book, which on the cover says (laughs) (laughs) $9.95. I paid $300 for it, so saw a little bit of inflation, and I'm just looking at Amazon. Your book was released and reprinted again, and on the hardcover, it's going for $189 and almost $100 used. So I think investing in your book has been one of the great investments of my life. Well, listen, I want to thank you for joining us on the Financial Sense News Hour. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you, and I can't tell you how much I admire the work that you've done. I've learned a great deal from it. When I take a look at events with central bankers around the world, and I keep referring back to your book, as I mentioned earlier as we began this interview, it's one of the best books I've ever read on inflation. And Mr. Marks, I want to thank you for joining us on the program. Well, thank you for your thoughts about it, and I wish you well. Well, thank you very much, and I wish you well. Godspeed. Well, that completes my interview with Ronald Marks. Once again, his nom de plume was Jens O'Parson. And I'll tell you, investing in his book has been a great investment. I bought the book. It was re-released back in 2011. And if you can get them, pick them up while you can now, because they won't be available for very much longer. I'm just looking at Amazon now and the supply There are 13 new copies left and seven used, so there are only 20 copies left of this book. And believe me, when you read it, it will be well worth the buy, because there is no finer book on the inflationary process than dying of money. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk